Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. All right, guys, we're back, and this week, first up, we've got Jason Whitehead up on the Tennessee River System. Jason, how y'all doing? Good, buddy. How are you? I cannot complain, man. I'm looking forward to that cold front that's moving in this weekend. You and me both. I think everybody is. It's been warm the last couple of weeks. It's Man, it's been warm the whole summer. We had down here in Mobile, we had, I think they said it was the hottest temperature ever recorded. So it's, it's been a scorcher of a summer, and i seen that cold front moving in this weekend, and I was like, man, finally. So, oh yeah, I think every I think everybody's excited about it. Yeah, well, it looks like uh, the heat didn't do y'all too bad because I know back it's been probably a month ago. I got my next door neighbor um, actually sent me a picture. He said, "Man, I went to Gunnersville and was fishing, and I looked at it. And I'm like, I think that's Jason's boat." And uh, then it, it was. I double checked with him. And he went fishing with you, so uh, y'all y'all did pretty good. He had a blast. Him and his nephew. He said that he'd be back up there with you. Uh, so I know y'all did okay over the summer, but I know everybody we've talked to has been has been getting ready for the transition. So what's what's that starting to look like for y'all? Y'all starting to see kind of the signs of that showing up? Yeah, we are. I mean, the fish are making their way from offshore and ledges, and they're working their way back into the creeks and and bays a little bit. They're still out in a little bit deeper water just because the water temperature hasn't dropped yet. But like you're saying, that cold front up, I believe, will really help this weekend. But we've been catching a bunch of them recently, just looking for bait fish, uh, scanning around back in the creeks and stuff, looking for the bait fish. And then we just kind of slow down in those areas, throwing some smaller smaller swim baits, uh, jackal dare coop, which is like a little George, just like a tailspin bait, and uh, Alabama rig, just a smaller, smaller size Alabama rig and covering the water where there is a lot of bait back in those creeks. Yeah, those, those Alabama rigs, that's... Uh... I, I saw somebody fish with one for the first time last weekend. One of our riders, David Strickland, we went up on the Sipsy, and uh, he was he was throwing one, and he caught some real big spots that way. It was the first time I'd, I'd seen that bait work, and it was really effective. For y'all's bait fish up there, what do you what do y'all primarily got up there? Threadfin shad? Is there anything else? Threadfin, that- yeah, threadfin's pretty much what they're keyed in on right now. All the threadfin are between you know two to three inches. So um i throw a demolition bait called a ripper um very similar to a kitek just a lot tougher uh it's a 3.75 inch and then we rig it up throw it on the a rig and that's just going to get better through winter time usually you can tell here when the a rig is going to fire up is when the leaves start changing and you start seeing those water temperatures drop down that alabama rigs just becomes a big player all through winter time well, well, tell me a little bit more about about your Alabama rig because that's something after after seeing it firsthand myself last weekend, I've been thinking about getting some and setting them up. I know it's it's a goofy mm-hmm. looking thing; it's a little bit different. I know they've gotten more popular in recent years, but uh, I've I've never thrown one. So tell me and our listeners what how are you usually yeah. throwing one? So the older ones, you know, five, ten, fifteen years ago, um, they were extremely hard to throw. Now, if you purchase a uh, a diamond bait bay rig. It's a lot lighter, even lighter than a uh, Yum Umbrella. I know the the Yum Umbrella is kind of a staple, even the Umbrella Junior. Um, the Diamond Baits makes one that's a lot lighter. So, you know, of course, me, I have clients that get in the boat and can't throw bait cashers and stuff, and we're able to get away with throwing the, the three-and-a-half-inch Diamond Baits Umbrella Rig, which has five arms, but it's only three-and-a-half inches wide. It's a lot lighter. Basically, it's like throwing a spinnerbait, much lighter than your normal A-Rigs. Um, we throw those on a on a heavy action MMA rod, and then I throw them on a seven seven extra heavy. So what is that? Is that kind of like a spinner bait? Is that just just mostly a cast and retrieve, or are you having to put any action on that bait when you reel it in? Yep, yep. We just throw it out. And that smaller size swim bait just mimics the bait fish that they're beating on right now. Like it's the size of the bait fish and it mimics the smaller bait. So the fish are keying in on schools and bait balls of fish so whenever that one comes by it's just hard for them to resist sure where what are you doing with it are you just kind of working it around the edges of covering structure 
just in the creek channel. So what we do is we'll we'll scan through the creek channel, find the balls of bait fish, look for some fish that are scattered out around the balls of bait, just drop the trolling motor down and start fan casting around. I got you. Got you. So kind of using it almost like a like a searching bait to pick up on scattered fish. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I run live scope and a couple other things, which definitely help. You know, you can see the bait balls and what level that they're at, what level that the fish are at, and then you're able to, to mimic that cadence to keep the bait at the right level. But usually, I mean, just for anybody that doesn't have it, if you just throw it out, throw and just cast and reel, just like you would a spinnerbait. I got you. Is there anything, do you ever get, get fancy? I know you can put multiple baits on it. Do you mix and match colors or keep them all the same? Is there a particular color you swear by just trying to imitate shad or? Yeah, I keep all mine the same. I do take a, a highlighter, and I will highlight a, some of the ends, that chartreuse. Not very much, but just a little bit. Kind of mimics, helps mimic that thread thin chat a little bit better. I got you. Well, Jason, we like to every now and then, we like to get with some of our guides and, and pick up a hot tip that people can implement this uh, this week out on the water. What's a good tip for us this week? What's, what's something that you notice that you usually got to coach folks through when you're out on the water? Uh, real cadence and real speed is, is a big one, especially this time of year. So if there's not a lot of surface activity and stuff like that, just slow your speed down. You know, 80% of the people that jump in the boat with me, they were reeling extremely too fast. If they're coming up and they're busting the surface and you start seeing a lot of surface activity, you know, burning the bait back to the boat would definitely help get a little bit more of a reaction strike out of the fish. Now, if there's not a lot of surface activity and the fish are lower in the water column, just slow your cadence down, slow that real speed down a little bit. And that end up getting you more bites. I, I, I like it. That's a good tip. And I know I've been guilty of that too, from time to time, fishing a little bit too, a little more shallow than I thought I was. So, well, that, uh, Jason, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know that you're out there. I can hear a little bit of wind noise. I know you're out there fishing. So we'll, uh, we'll let you go get back to it. But I definitely appreciate your time. And, uh, if folks want to get with you, if folks want to book a trip, where's a good place to reach out to you? Uh, they can look me up on Facebook. Uh, Instagram, I got a website that's aleliteFishingGuide.com. Uh, most of most of my stuff's on Facebook though. It's Alabama Elite Fishing Guide. Absolutely. Well, folks, y'all be sure if y'all get up on the Tennessee River system and y'all are looking for a great bass fishing guide, y'all check Jason out. And Jason, I appreciate your time this week, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for the invite, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. If you own a pond or lake anywhere in the southeast, Southeastern Pond Management can evaluate the health of your pond and then work with you individually to put together the right plan to get what you want out of your body of water. Through electrofishing, liming, fertilizing, and stocking and weed control, Southeastern Pond Management is the one-stop shop to help you produce more healthy trophy fish than ever before. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call 1-888-830-POND or email info at southeastpond.com. And brought to you by L&M Marine. L&M Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoon boats, to bigger bay boat and offshore hybrids. L&M Marine LLC prides itself on its customer service and knows how important it is to be taken care of and to have someone you can trust. They are locally owned and regularly support the surrounding community. L&M Marine provides superior customer service and has an entire team that consists of professional sales members, finance experts, service technicians, and a knowledgeable parts and accessory staff to fully support you. Go visit their friendly, reliable, and experienced staff today. L&M Marine is located six miles north of I-10 at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama. You can also reach them by phone at 251-937-1380. All right, guys, that was Jason Whitehead up on the Tennessee River. We're back now, and this time uh, we're going to switch from big lake bass fishing. We're going to talk about some of the smaller rivers. We're going to talk about fall fly fishing. Uh, I'm excited. I'm fixing to go up to DeSoto this weekend and, and get after that, catch this cool front, go spend some time playing in the mountains. Uh, we're here today with Stephen Rockarts because I figured he'd be a pretty good guy to uh, talk to. Stephen, tell me all about it. Tell me about the fall fly fishing. How you doing, man? Uh, let me tell you what it is. I mean, it is picking up. We went out, uh, you know, something, I mean, rewind, something to be really, you know, I mean, excited about, especially this time of year is that, you know, we have the least amount of rainfall. The water levels are typically the lowest uh, they are all year. Specifically on the Cahaba, they're the lowest they've been in four years. 
And what that does is it allows crystal clear sight fishing opportunities for bass. And, uh, man, it's just, there's, there's nothing like it. The fish are eager, they're hungry, they're fattening up, they're getting ready for, um, they're getting ready for the winter so they can really fill their bellies. And this is when it starts, man. It's, whoo, I am pumped. Yeah. It's, uh, so it's funny. I was out the other day down here on the coast on the Perdido River and, uh, I used to spend a lot of time out there. I used to be in Baldwin County Hunting Club across the road from it. And I didn't fly fish back then. And getting into it, I wanted to go explore. Uh, my daughter's been teething, so I've been trying to get her out of the house just a little bit for both of our sanity. And uh, I walked her back there to the river, and man, it was like you said, I've never seen Perdido River that low, and I've never seen it that clean. I mean, you could see straight to the bottom. The deepest place I found was about four feet, but you could see sucker fish on the bottom. I mean, you, it was just crystal clear and clean, and that's what I was thinking. It's like, man, I wish... I wish instead of having a baby strapped to my chest, I wish I had a fly rod because it looks real fishy. <laughs> oh yeah, and hey, and like you said, it like it's crystal clear. You can see just about, you can see just about everything in the water. So if you're wanting to like branch out, and not just target bass, you can target carp, you can target uh, catfish, you can target brim, you can target. I mean, you can target just about anything this time of the year due to the visibility. And this is the only time of the year. Uh, I, you know, I've got a thing. I don't think bass are leader shy or i guess test shy whatever you want to call it um i typically fish with 20 sometimes 30 pound tests the lowest i go is about 16 and uh, i use n- nylon non-abrasive stuff and i don't think the bass care one 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 bit like i don't think they care at all but this time of year as everything gets kind of gin clear or if you're going to be fishing gin clear skinny water i'll taper it down to about eight pounds that's about as low as i'll go but a good clear nylon eight pounds and you can use other things like fluorocarbon and mono and stuff like that just depends on you know float ratios and what flies or lures or whatever you want to call it uh that you're fishing but um man this time of year is just something special you can you can pick apart creeks uh one of my favorite things to do is hit any and every rock ledge even if it looks like it's three inches i've had 17 18 19 inch alabama bass aka spots just come out of these places that you have no idea that they would be there out of small creeks big creeks etc and uh man they just smoke it it's awesome downsize your fly a little bit you can still do big streamers but downsize it a little bit and it just it's a blast and a half and all the little ones are eager too so yeah something to look forward to talking about small small bass and small waters i know this will be something that you appreciate so i got a chance to go with one of our riders and he took me to a place he's been fishing since he was a kid and uh he thoroughly outfished me i didn't feel too bad because he's he's got he's been fishing that river since before i was born so he kind of had home court advantage but uh <laughs> a little little small creek of a river and he was pulling some big i mean he he probably pulled some five pound plus spotted bass up at that water and like you said there would be times he was uh he was fishing in places where you'd be like yeah that's not gonna hold a fish and then he'd make a few casts and here it would come so it'll it'll surprise you for sure i've been a uh, this is my first year really doing the Alabama bass thing, and they're uh, definitely similar but different than largemouth bass. I'm looking forward to learning more about them as time goes on. So, but uh, I know that's that's one of your specialties. I thought you'd like it. We uh, I'll have to send you some pictures. Remind me when we get off the show. I'll send you some pictures of them. But uh, what are your thoughts? I know the guys on the big lakes are always really excited when the temperatures drop because them lakes get pretty hot. You know, surface temperature out there on the lakes here over the summer was up 90 degrees. And I know places like, you know, the Cahaba and some of the smaller streams that, that you and other fly fishermen fish, they don't ever really get that hot, it seems to me. But what happens like this weekend, you got a 40 degree day coming up, going to dip down into the 30s, 40s up in North Alabama overnight. What does that do to those those shallower waters? Does that change anything like those sudden cold snaps? Do y'all see a change in the fly fishing? Great question. For me, this time of year, there is not a substantial change. If anything, for me, you know, fish typically in the summertime in moving water, they're either going to be directly in that current, or if the, the water temperature is too high, they're going to be down there on the bottom, and you're going to really have to force feed them, which is boring, but if you, if you, if you really want to catch fish, you can do it that way. But generally speaking, as, this, as these cooler temperatures pick up, you'd be surprised at the larger fish that come up out of those deeper holes where they've been hiding out or those, those pockets where they've been kind of dormant. And they'll actually start surfacing and they'll start looking and searching for food, kind of like they do in late, fall, late summer. 
you know, they'll, they'll ride towards the top of the surface in late summer and you'll see them cruise real slow and you can sight fishing like that. But in the fall, what they end up doing is they end up staying a little bit closer as those temperatures drop. They stay a little bit closer to the bottom of the river and, you know, spots like hey, Alabama bass, they'll hold more towards rocks versus timber, right? But don't pass any, any piece of timber at all. Don't pass it up, cast to it, especially this time of year, because those bass will get underneath that timber and they'll use the timber as cover and they'll work their way up river and they'll use the edge of the bank and they'll get on the timber and they'll work their way back up, um, especially that clear water. So they're holding to more structure than they normally would um, due to the fact that the visibility has increased. Um, but no, the bass are moving just as much now as they, as they ever have been. But it's very important to hit the structure for the larger fish and, and, and just pretend the fish is there. Like every cast needs to be a confident cast. And it's, it's so interesting because especially if you're fishing top water, you could even be fishing a woolly bugger or a streamer, small streamer, but you'd be surprised as long as you're consistent with your casting at structure, you'd be surprised how many times, and this is kind of throwing a cog in the wheel, what I just said, but you'll be surprised how many times, as long as you make the perfect cast, as long as you set it down in front of the structure, you fish the front of the structure before you fish the back of the structure, et cetera. As long as you fish it properly, you'll see fish come from 10, 12, 15, sometimes even 20 feet away. And they'll just smoke it. And they won't make those approaches or let their guard down like that unless you're making the, the right cast at structure. I mean, they just won't do it. They won't do it for a middle of the river cast. They won't do it for a four foot off the bank cast, nothing like that. So I got a little carried away there. I got excited. I like fishing <laughs> in the fall. Um, but opportunity is just so abundant. Tell, tell me a little bit. So you were talking about how this is the time of the year that you kind of get a little bit pickier about your leader something and, and talking about just sight fishing in general so i i did a lot of it growing up in the creek behind my house just with a three foot four foot you know zebco combo sitting there you know playing with bluegill and sight fishing them and, and for me that's always been really big like i i will get distracted you know knowing that there's bigger fish in a river or a lake or a creek but i can see these fish like that that's irresistible right. to me even if they're small fish if i can see a fish i have to catch them uh, I was fishing the other day for some little dollar sunfish. I don't know if y'all got them up that far north, but I mean, they, they cap out at like four or five inches. Like that's, that's the biggest right, one I right. recorded was like six inches, but I could see them. So I had to catch them. <laughs> uh, what are some of your best tips for sight fishing as far as, is getting to a fish and having him see your fly without seeing you? So we'll start off with the basics. So, and this is probably what most people do, waiting. If you're waiting, general rule of thumb is, you know, pick your spot out, whether you're blue lining it, that means you're going on Google Maps or you're looking at a traditional paper map and you're finding a creek and you look like, this area looks like the fish are holding, whatever it is. When you're waiting, typically I would go a little bit of a longer leader, um, maybe nine feet. Uh, and then eight pound test is fine. If you want to downsize a little bit, either because the eyelet on the hook, your your line won't tie through it, or if you think the fish are just spooking, you can downsize it a little bit. You just can't horse the fish if you if you hook into them, especially bass. But wading upstream is vital. Um, this time of year, if you're wading downstream, those fish see you coming from 50, 60 feet away, they're gone. They're tucked away. They're hidden, and they're not even going to look at, at anything, no matter how far, no matter what you throw at them. So wading upstream. Also, waiting for your your wake that you create uh, to dissipate and or at least to stay less than 10 feet in front of you. So that's kind of the pace you need to have. If your wake starts going all the way up river, especially in the still spots, you're doing something wrong or you need to move a little bit slower because um, those fish will see that interruption on the water surface and they'll just automatically be on guard a little bit more. So a general rule of thumb is I tell everybody, if you're, if you're waiting, skinny, clear creeks this time of year, it's you need to have good long cast. You need to have a center or a smaller in diameter uh, leader, but still strong, right? And you need to hit all structure, which we already covered that. And downsize on your fly as well. So downsizing on that fly, using a woolly bugger, using a smaller bait fish pattern, things like that on small creeks. Um, if you're going to be on larger water, if you're progressing it up to a kayak, a canoe, or a raft, whatever it is, you can still float downstream. That's fine. But just be aware that those fish, if you're trying to get up right where you're wanting to fish and then you fish right off your left-hand side or right off your, your right-hand side, they're probably not going to hit anything. But if you can scoot from one side of the river to the other side of the river and fish the, the side that's furthest away from you, usually I like to tell people from 10 to 12 o'clock. 
you know, if you're facing downriver from 10 to 12 o'clock, that's your target range. That typically the more productive way of doing it. Um, or if you want to get out and stop at the top of a shoal, try not to let your kayak and you yourself personally try not to wade down to the next shoal and always cast before you get to the edge. So cast, you know, and if you think about it, fish are probably holding on the edge. If you were wading upstream, you'd fish the back and then you work your way up to the top and you probably get some hits up there at the top of the shoal. So if you're fishing downriver, stop about 10, 15, 20 feet. If you're in your kayak, raft, canoe, whatever, stop, get out and make those long casts and deal with the, the trouble that the current gives you and try to feed that front edge because fish are probably standing there. Most people are inclined to just walk to the edge and start walking in and fishing, but you usually spook two or three fish that way. So long casts. There we go. Do you, do you ever get into, I know I've talked with a few guys, especially down here that like sight fish the flats and uh, I, I don't know enough about to tell you if it's just a marketing trend or if there's something to it, but I know there's a lot of guys that uh, swear up and down on wearing like white or sky blue shirts. You know, they're real particular about how they dress. Is that ever something that you worry about? Do you dress in the, the greens and the drabs to match canopy on skinny water and dress in lighter colors to match sky on bigger water, or do you just go? So, once again, you've got some great questions. For me, I do change it up a little bit this time of year. Um, I will wear lighter colored shirts if I know that I'm on going to be on big water. And I know that that sky is going to be at my back. Most of the time I'll wear a lighter colored shirt, uh, nothing fluorescent, um, but just a pale blue or a pale white. That's fine. Uh, or an off white or a tan or sand. I make most of my shirts in sand for like the guide service, but I just think that's a good overall neutral. But if I'm on skinny water or something like that, I think it'd be a little bit better to have something a little darker or something that would blend in with the trees that are going to be surrounding you. Or you're going to be a little bit closer to. So yeah, I do. I do that as well. A little bit of a lighter shirt, nothing fluorescent if I'm on big water, but if I'm on, if I'm on skinny water, I, I just kind of tone it down a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not incredibly specific. I, I usually rely on my casting more than I do my visibility. Um, sure. But if you really want to get in there and pick it apart, focus on visibility. Sure. Well, I will, uh, on the, on the off chance that it matters, I'll have me a light shirt and a, a, a drab shirt uh, for up there this weekend. And I'll definitely, I'll let you know how it works out. I'm super excited. I've been down here in the swamp, man, that summer weather it gets old after a while. So I'm looking forward to a good crisp, cold morning up in the mountains up there, uh, fishing some waterfalls. Oh yeah. Some numb toes. <laughs> oh yeah. I man, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, man. It has been, it has been an absolute scorcher and I just cannot express how much I'm looking forward to it. But, uh, I'll, I'll definitely keep all that in mind when I go up there and, uh, I'll let you know how I do. And Steven, I appreciate your time. Uh, if somebody wants to book a trip with you, what's a good way to get in touch with you? Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, just, uh, Google or, Look up uh, www.flyfishingalabama.com, or you can uh, go on Facebook. It's Fly Fishing Alabama LLC. And then if you want to just go on Instagram, that's probably where, I guess, the most uh, present update information is. You can go there, and that's just Fly Fishing Alabama on Instagram. And uh, you can just reach out to me any way you want to, and we just kind of take it from there. Awesome. Well, folks, y'all definitely be sure to check Stephen out. Stephen, I appreciate your time today. Absolutely, brother. Hope you have a good one. Bye. Hey, you too. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Texas Hunter. Every detail of the Texas Hunter Wrangler hunting blind has been designed for your comfort. Fully carpeted walls and ceiling provides a scent and noise barrier, while sealed windows keep bugs and pests from joining you on the hunt. A solid galvanized steel roof is sure to protect you from the elements and will never leak or rust. The Wrangler is available in the ground model or with a 4-foot or 8-foot tower model available for extra-wide, sturdy stairs. Visit TexasHunter.com to check out their wide variety of premium outdoor products. Built in America since 1954. And by Killer Dock. Today we're going to profile another common form of dock dysfunction. Dirty Dock. Have you ever cleaned up a nice mess of fish and then watched your wife's face in disgust when she sees your dirty dock as a result? It's happened to all of us who are cleaning fish on old, wooden fish cleaning tables that don't slope toward the water. You need dock enhancement. Killer Dock fish cleaning stations are marine-grade aluminum coated with a ceramic finish that makes cleaning your dirty dock a cinch. The scales and slime drain directly into the water, through the legs, or through the slots. You choose the style. Check out the best fish cleaning stations known to mankind at KillerDock.com. All right, guys, we're here this week with Jake Gilk. Jake is the co-owner of Backwater Incorporated. Uh, Backwater makes some really nice long-tail mud motor kits. Um, they offer kits, they offer full engines. Uh, I've seen them at the ramp. 
they're really they kind of stood out in my mind as a really high quality thing the guys that i know who have them are really happy with them and i'm really excited to to sit down today with jake and kind of learn more about them uh jake how you doing today doing real good then uh, thanks for having me yeah absolutely uh i know we was just talking it seemed like for both of us teal season was a little bit of bust uh what else do y'all do with the mud motors up there in Minnesota? I know down here on the Gulf Coast, man, people people use them to kind of get out in the flats a little bit. They're big with uh, duck hunters, especially out in Louisiana, Florida. I know up north, y'all's rivers kind of freeze over. Do y'all use them to kind of bust ice and stuff up there? How, how do you usually use yours? Well, so, I mean, being we're talking about the ice, absolutely uh, late season is uh, they, they really do shine. You don't got water pumps freezing up, anything like that and the durability you're able to bust through that ice. But really, just any kind of uh, shallow water situation is where they really shine. So you're asking, like, how people use them. I get a lot of, or I don't get a lot, but I get more time to do fishing because we're not quite as busy that time of year. So I do a lot of uh, river fishing, a lot of cat fishing, and some bass fishing. And even there's, like, musky guys that get out and do uh, get to the shallow water where no one else can get to. But then also we have a pretty good number of trappers that use our long tails as well. That's interesting. I can I can definitely see that the the uh, getting getting back there chasing down here we have we don't have a lot of uh, muskrat or mink or anything like that, but we have a lot of guys that trap nutria and raccoon and uh, beaver. And that would definitely be uh, right right up the wheelhouse for that. So yeah. Um, well, let's let's back up a little bit and get for the folks who aren't familiar. And I, I feel like at this point, you know, most guys have at least seen and heard of of mud motors in general. But I know there's different types of mud motors. Kind of, kind of, give me the one hundred and one on what a long tail mud motor is and how it differs from, you know, a conventional outboard or some of the other types of mud motors out there on the market. Yeah, sure. So you know, your conventional outboard is going to have, you know, if your prop comes, you know, straight down from the engine and then gives your push and it's water cool that's the that's the big thing and the durability of them is not made to withstand hits from logs and rocks and that sort of thing where a mud motor let's say now i'm kind of going to give a being a surface drive or a long tail mud motor they're an air-cooled engine with a very durable drive system to withstand uh, taking hits from uh, rocks or mud or even just to be more weedless. Now, the difference between a long tail and a surface drive is the surface drive is going to come straight down and then go out, where the long tail is a long shaft coming right over the back of the engine, um, going back into the water. So they both are air-cooled, which, you know, is the benefit when you're in the mud and the weeds, and they're both very durable. Now, the difference, though, that you're going to get with a long tail is you have the long reach and the ability just to, like, pull around the motor using that long tail as a as a big lever. And I, and I know, you know, from owning one, like you were talking about the way that a surface drive goes down and over, you know, you've got just kind of a direct drive system coming off of that, that engine drive shaft yeah. with the long tail. So they're really mechanically they're they're super super simple was was a big appeal when i got mine you know the long tail is you know the long you know use it as the tool push push you around but it's also the simple design where if your engine's running your props turning and you're gone uh the surface drive has is going to come down and either with gears or belts make that angle change Sure. And so with that in mind, like like the simplicity of them, I imagine, is is why most people are getting them, because from my experience in operating one, I used one for three seasons and there was really not much to go wrong or maintain versus, you know, really the reason I got into one was because I was so tired of during boat season. I was always working on uh, a boat motor. You know, when it was when it was summer and you wanted to fish, you were always there was an issue with your impeller or there was an issue with your carburetor or, you know, you had an issue with your foot. You had to change foot oil. You had to do all this maintenance on your water pump, especially if you ran skinny. And with a long tail, there's not much to it other than keeping the shaft greased and, and just not letting gas set up on it. Am I am I basically right? Yeah, you're you're very correct in that. So 
you know, the long tail, because it's a four stroke engine, you're not mixing, you're not mixing gas. And yeah, the drive system, especially in what we do, we have a bell housing design with a clamping coupler. And then there's a direct shaft running all the way from your engine down to your prop supported by bearings. And inside there, there's some grease and sealed bearings. So if your engine's running, your prop's turning, really once per year, you need to be greasing the shaft and making sure you don't have any water in that system. Sure. You know, I know we kind of talked about, you know, they're basically super popular with anybody who's looking to run in shallow water. What What are some limitations of the system? What are some, some things people should be aware of before they get one? Where Where might... You know, if somebody was coming to you and saying, hey, I'm looking to get a mud motor, this is what I plan on using it for. Are there any conditions where you would say, well, hey, to be honest, you know, this is something you should know before you buy this motor? Yeah, they're not. The one, the one thing I'll say is they're not made for top end speed. Now, well, I tell you that we build a 40 horsepower that if you put it on a 16 foot boat will run 22 to 25 miles an hour. Yes. But now let's say you're looking at a smaller boat it like a 1436 and you want to put a 10 horsepower on there with two guys and a dog you might run around that 10 mile an hour mark so they're they're not they're not necessarily super fast people do often ask me whether you can run it in open water how it's going to do in open water the answer is totally fine they they will run fine they're just not going to be as fast you know for some reason people think that the like the prop won't operate well in the open water, but they do just fine. The other thing there where I'll say there's a limitation on, and this is any type of motor, but is if you're in very shallow water and it's all rocks, there you can, you know, rocks are just the hardest thing you can hit, right? So there are, there are cases where people want to use it um, in an in a all rock river and you can absolutely do it, but I just tell you to slow down. Sure. Yeah, that's I, I ran mine a little bit up in the uh, Sepulga here in Alabama, and uh, and that's it's really what you're saying is true with just about any type engine. If you got a prop spinning below your boat, uh, props and rocks don't get along super well. <laughs> so it it ran yeah. fine in the shallows. It did really good, but I, I did you know it will chew through a prop, and then down here on the sandbars, doing inshore fishing and teal hunting and stuff like that down on the bay, yeah, sand will uh put put a wear on a prop pretty quick compared to mud so and i'm not trying to say that they're not a good option because it still is it's probably still your best option for a prop motor in rocks it's just that i don't want to give the impression that it's fully bulletproof it's as strong as it can be but you know you still have to be smart about what you're running it in sure sure absolutely well, well, with all that said, kind of kind of, we've talked a little bit about the pros, where they work, some things you need to keep in mind when you buy one. You know, you're you're the expert. You make them. You make a really good one. Um, I'm assuming that you're familiar with, with all the other options that are out there on the market. What are some general things to look for? What what in your mind makes a good long tail motor? What makes a good kit? If, if somebody's looking to buy one, how do they make sure that they get a good one that's going to suit their needs? Well, you know... I'm going to say this first, that there's a very, there's a pretty big price range in between, you know, from some of the import stuff to what we're building. And in, in my opinion, you know, it's very well worth the money to spend and buy something one American made and two that's, you know, thought out and, and of made of quality parts. You know, I mentioned earlier that our system is, you know, sealed bearings and solid the solid drive shaft running up to a, a solid coupler clamping onto the engine so a very like stout solid built unit so obviously i think that our design is is superior but i also see where people come from and where there are a lot of people out there that start with the like the import kit and you know it's about a quarter of the price and i'm going to say it's about a quarter of the quality Sure. Well, and there's there's at a certain point, as somebody who owned one of those kits, I I can tell you I went into it knowing, you know, what you were getting. If you're if you're looking at a kit that you're seeing on the internet that goes for, you know, a half to a quarter of the price, like you said, you kind of you kind of know going into it, uh, that that metal 
probably uh you know you're you're probably not getting CNC machined parts and you're probably not getting any type of metal that you could look up in a spec book right like uh it's yeah. it's pop metal you know and and i guess part of the other thing is is you know a long tail looks very simple but there is a lot more that goes into making them run run as fast and as easy and be as durable as as something like we've built and some of the other american companies have built sure well talk talk a little bit about that as as far as the things to look for i know when i was in it the speed that you gave is about right like depending on the load that i had i ran anywhere from about 12 to 17 miles an hour in my little 1436 um and i was always tweaking things tweaking the trim of the boat i never really did get into modifying the engine any just because I, I just generally don't like to hot rod things because I've seen what happens um, when you when you hot rod and, things, and and I needed and, it to get me out of the swamp would, at night. So, and I would agree with that completely. So often I get the phone call of, "Hey, I have this little motor, and I'm trying to do this to it to get more out of it." And you know, a lot of times what it comes down to is there is no replacement for displacement you you need the you need the displacement of a larger engine to have the torque to turn a bigger prop to move faster uh, and to get through more sure well let's let's talk about that a little bit because i did initially i wasn't sure how much horsepower i want on the back of my boat and i went from an eight horsepower to a 13 horsepower i think it was like a 301 cc to a 420 and yeah i, I was pretty happy with that on the back of a 1436 I feel like I could have took a little bit more. I know that you get into kind of a weird place with long tails because they're so heavy, right? And and they kind of put a, a a different stress on a transom. So I never felt like my boat, for example, technically, the sticker on the back said you could put a 25-horse motor on it. And I do not think I would have liked a 25-horse motor on the back of it without any pods or anything like that on it. But I, I I did, that was the biggest motor I felt comfortable putting on the transom, and that's what gave me the best performance. I feel like people should, or, or my advice if I was talking to a buddy would be to to max out what your boat was capable of handling. What, as a general rule, do, do you recommend? You know, I know, I know these motors are most popular on small boats. So, you know, I, I know you make them from about, a six and a half horsepower all the way up to, I think, usually what I see is 22. I know you said you mentioned a 40, which I think would be considered like a big block kit. Um, Correct, yeah. Where would that be appropriate? If you don't mind, kind of walk me through from that smallest motor on up and kind of where they, what hole that would be a good uh, fit for. Yeah, so so we actually make two different models of a, of a six horsepower. So in the six horsepower, we make an ultralight and then a regular swamp light, what we call. So the ultralight it has all the same features. It's just going to be extra lightweight. We did we accomplished that by you know thinner materials, uh, hollow drive tube, and and really just shaving shaving off any excess that we could anywhere just to save on weight. Now that ultralight, I'm going to say, is going to be the ticket on your sneak boats and 40 or 1232. 1436 is real common or anywhere where you're needing to get into a place where you need to maybe lift the motor off, carry the motor in, carry the boat in and, and go that way. Um, but that, that's where the six horsepower, you know, it, people ask me, oh, how does that do? And I say, well, you know, it's about a hundred times better than rowing or push pulling. <laughs> so the, the six horsepower is nice on that. And, having the extra light weight in those situations uh, where you do need to transport is awesome. Then the next size is kind of like the 10 horsepower. And that's like what I call like a 1436, maybe a 1442 boat size. Nice, nice in that. And I should clarify when I'm talking that when I'm saying this is first two numbers are the length and feet. And the second two numbers are uh, the width at the bottom of the boat in inches. Yeah, the 10 horsepower is a nice, nice match on like a 1436 or a 1442. And then that 1442 size is where you'll segue right into fitting on like, yeah, that 22 kit with the, some people put the 22 Predator on there. Uh, we sell that complete with the Vanguard uh, 
uh, Vanguard 23 horsepower. Um, and then that 1648 will be a nice, or excuse me, that 23 horsepower size will be a nice match from that like 1442, 1542, 1648, and even like a lightweight, maybe like 1748 or 1752. Um, but when you start getting those larger sizes, I will say that it's important that uh, you're still at a on a flat bottom boat. Um, and then do you want me to talk about some of the larger horsepowers as well? Uh, yeah, I think since that's something that y'all offer, I don't know when I looked at them originally, that wasn't really something that you saw a lot of. They seemed like they kind of capped out it at about that 22 range at 670 cc. So yeah, I'd be, if nothing else, partially interested to hear more about your big block engines. Yeah, so the big block is just, I mean, it, it actually puts a smile on my face uh, just even thinking about running them. Uh, when you run the 40 horsepower, uh, the the type of power and what, what you're capable of doing is, is just, you know, amazing. You know, I'll, for example, I was out with the family and, and friends on 4th of July with the 40 horsepower on my large boat, 1856 flat bottom. I had, uh, you know, five adults and two little kids and we were able to run, you know, 22 to 23 miles an hour, uh, over six inches of water in a sandbar uh, and, and, and even less in place. So the, the big block power and the type of speed and the size of boat you're able to push is, is really impressive. And the big block that like that 40 horsepower, 35 horsepower, they'll, they'll push your 1752 modified V, you know, you know, from your Lumacraft to your tracker Grizzly, the bolts with the modified V in a 20 inch transom. Now, those bolts aren't your ideal matches for a long tail motor because that V bottom doesn't uh, run as shallow. And the V also takes more power to get up on plane and running really shallow. But that's where if you're, if you have that, that style of boat and you're thinking long tail is where you really don't want to sell yourself short on power. Like you were saying, because having that big block power is enough then to get that boat up on step and performing real nice. So, so Jake, the, the big block sounds like a lot of fun. I can tell you from my experience, just running my little 13, I got to admit I do it because, because I'm not chicken, but I'd have a little trepidation running a big block. Like you're describing on a big boat like that. Cause they, they take a, a fair amount of effort to steer compared to a traditional motor. Do you got any, uh, you got any pointers for somebody running a big block? Yeah, and you make a great point there, whether it be a surface drive or a long tail. When you have that type of power, you, you need to, you know, respect what you're, what you're doing and, and be aware of the situation. Now, I've been trying not to be too biased, but I'm, I'm going to tell you that with what we do in our design with our um, cavitation plate and just the whole design of our long tail, we run much easier. And I actually, I meant to bring that up when you were asking me about what to look for in a kit is the cavitation plate that's over the top of the prop. Uh, like our design makes it much easier to drive. So if you find yourself running an import kit and you think, man, this thing just is kind of terrible or you, you dislike the way it drives, you know, don't let that turn you off of all the American made stuff that's out there. So what I was kind of segueing into with all this is I was actually sitting down, you know, I was out told, told you over the 4th of July, I was out running. I was actually sitting down running that 40 horsepower with two, with my uh, squeeze in the throttle with my pinky and holding onto the handle with my thumb. Now I, I have a boat that we made to design to run with, with our motors, but really all that is is flat bottom, short transom, and then me telling my buddy where to sit. So we have the boat balanced out properly. So what, what is like one of the tips, if you're running a long tail and you're fighting it left to right, that's almost always weight balanced out in the boat. Now, does that make sense? I think so. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, so if, if it's always pulling to the right, want, want to turn, want, want, well, wanting to turn to the right, you need to tell your buddy to scoot over. Or sometimes it's even me telling my dog to come over to the other side of the boat and stand there. Cause it, it's that, it's that finicky. And then if you're fighting the prop, up and down. Now, if your boat has a cavitation, or if your motor has a cavitation plate, that's the angle uh, of that cavitation plate. 
So without getting too in depth, the cavitation plate acts like a wing in the water. So if that angle is too steep, it's going to be diving down. And if the angle is too shallow, it's going to be, you know, flying up and popping out of the water. So that, that's something you can adjust. And there's actually a video on our website of actually me out on a lake adjusting a cavitation plate. Yeah, that was something that I definitely found with mine was that adjusting the cavitation plate and then your uh, your your prop guard, your skeg. And and then too, just making sure that you have the thing centered. Because <laughs> when, I, when I put mine on the first time, I think I was off center on my hole by... It wasn't much. It was like an inch and a half, but I went back with a tape measure and found the true center line. And it made just a little thing like that made a really big difference, I guess, because that shaft is so long and that prop is so far behind the boat. Um, and you're dealing with so much torque, you know, like uh, these engines are really, yeah. really torquey. It's just big, big engines, one-to-one drive, big prop, you know, like they, uh, they're yeah. definitely different beasts. Yeah, it's different, you know, definitely very much strongly recommend having a stand-up bar or a grab bar or you you call it what you want but you know something to, to hold on to because a lot of times you know i said i was sitting down running but generally i actually prefer to be standing up because it gives you a much better vantage point to see you know generally speaking you know it's either dark out your when you're running or you're running in weeds or through stuff that has you know obstacles in the water that you know and that standing gives you that better vantage point to to see that stuff you know, a couple like running tips. First thing I'll, I always tell people is, is wear your kill switch and, and check it on a triply basis. You know, on, a, on basically all these motors, the kill switch is ground to kill. So if you haven't used it in five years, you don't know if that kill switch is going to make a good ground. So I recommend checking your, your kill switch on a triply, or on a triply basis. And then the next thing is slow down for corners because, you know, when you're talking about that, that torque when steering, the more throttle you're giving it, the more power the prop has, and the more torque you're going to have hang, hanging onto that handle. So you can you can really make it a lot easier by by slowing down and and doing your sharp corner in that way. For sure, for sure, I think those are really good tips. That was uh, the the standing up to operate one. It didn't just make it easier, but you're right. Like the nature of the environment that you operate them on, uh, I always felt more comfortable standing up and and either having a good good headlamp or a good light bar. Uh, to see what you were doing and i then i did the boat that i put this motor on uh the first year i had it i was running through the timber and i managed to to put a, a pretty good dent in the front of a brand spanking new all weld 1436 <laughs> um then it still wears that to this day i managed to pull it out a little bit but yeah it'll uh it'll it'll surprise you sometimes uh the stuff that's sitting there in that six inches of water that you'd think you'd see but you don't in the morning fog so but yeah i think uh they're they're real interested guys if y'all are looking at getting one i know we're getting closer to duck season i know we just finished up with teal season and uh every year it seems like down here the tide goes out in the bay and you see folks who are sitting there stranded you see you see facebook posts on the local outdoorsman group people looking to to get pulled so i know this time of the year uh, a lot of people are, are looking to maybe reevaluate what they got set up before we get into the big duck season jake if we got somebody who's listening in who's who's interested uh, where's a good place to get a hold of you? Uh, you know, the good place to, you know, just check out our motors is is our website, which is backwaterink.com. And then, you know, call us and ask questions. You know, if you have a boat that you're wondering if it's the good match for it or just, you know, looking to get set up, you can reach out to us. And our phone number is uh, 320-266-0797. You can just give us a call and we're going to be happy to help you out. Absolutely. Folks, definitely check out Jake and Backwater Inc. Great company, American-made product. Uh, Jake, I appreciate you being on the show today. Hey, and thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks offer numerous items to help get your project done right the first time. They carry a variety of different panel profiles and your choice of colors and gauges with all the matching trim and accessories. They also offer a full line of hardware items and post-frame building design. Their friendly and knowledgeable sales representatives are always willing to help answer any questions or concerns you may have. Contact them with any questions or to get a free estimate today. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. Also brought to you by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs, using traditional scent strips for pompano, 
or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Family owned and operated in St. Augustine, Florida, they pride themselves on making reliably consistent fishing products for anglers of all ages all around the world. Fish Bites baits and lures are made with pride in the Sunshine State here in USA. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up this week's show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast, just text FISHING to 314-665-1767. Again, just text the word FISHING to 314-665-1767. Subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the new show each week. This week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Texas Hunter. Since 1954, Texas Hunter Products has delivered the finest quality fish and game feeders and hunting blinds in the industry. To learn more, visit TexasHunter.com. Also brought to you by Hayabusa. Hayabusa Fishing, extremely well known for their premium sabiki rigs, but also don't forget their full line of saltwater hooks and jigs as well as freshwater bass hooks. See what you've been missing at HayabusaFishing.com and by Mallard Bay. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Plan trips, buy gear, go experience. MallardBay.com and brought to you by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at FishBites.com. Also brought to you by Bucks Island. Bucks Island has been in business since 1948 for all of your new and used boat needs, as well as motor sales and service, and now they have a pro-level tackle store. Boat and motor trade-ins are welcome. Visit them online at BucksIsland.com or give them a call at 256-442-2588 and by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator, bringing you the highest quality online satellite fishing charts since 2004. Your source for sea temps, allometry, currents, and watercolor at hiltonsoffshore.com.